Well, we've been talking a lot about God lately, haven't we? We definitely have. It's been um, funny that it's been the God of War series. Well, I think it's time that we move on to a little bit of war then. Always ready for a little bit of war. I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Unfortunately, with the two period, well, with Henry VIII's reign, we really only get like two big instances of war, but luckily we have two queens who take a rather large part within those wars. So we thought we would talk about those today. I do. I, I quite like this episode. I'm quite excited about this one. Because I will tell you for why. I, it shows very different elements of their personalities and it shows us a really interesting way of their governance, which we very rarely get to see. And it's a governance in their own rights when they were set, set up as um, queen regents in Henry's absence. So we're going to put the Reformation to one side for a minute, not to say that it's not going on in the background of all of this. It very much is, but we're going to be looking at specific instances of organized warfare in this episode, yeah. specifically two major campaigns that Henry went on to France. Um, one in 1513 and the other in 1544. And during these times, as Callie mentioned, when Henry was physically gone from England, he named his wives as his regents, meaning that they ruled in his stead. And these queens were our first and our last, Catherine of Aragon and Catherine Parr. Lovely bookends. I know, our, our two of three Catherines. And it's interesting, actually, because we were talking a little bit before we turned the recording on um, just about our our research into this and how different the two women's approaches to the Regency was. So actually, the circumstances under which they became Regents was really similar, but how they handled it and like what happened as a result was really different. So it'll be interesting to kind of unpack that and see what we can tell about these women based on how they react to these situations. 100%. I think it's very surprising, actually, um, by the end of it, the impressions that we get left with with these with these queens, because it is quite striking, particularly for Catherine of Aragon, and we'll come back to this, I'm sure, throughout this episode, is how her role in kind of war and conflict and as a regent has kind of gone down as like a bit of a cultural myth and almost it's got these weird little legends surrounding it. And it's almost very yeah. much the same way. like... It gives me like Elizabeth the first at Tilbury kind of. That's vibe. literally what I was just thinking. Yeah, definitely. Um, we see that you know with the recent adaptation of Catherine of Aragon's early life in the Spanish Princess, we see these episodes of war and battle really being used dramatically for like these big climactic scenes. And that's not to say that they weren't, but going through the actual reality of what happened is interesting because. It it does, you know, it speaks well of Catherine that she went through the situation and she handled it so well. But what does this actually say about her as a ruler versus how Catherine Parr approached it in a much less dramatic way? I just, yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into it. 
So just a refresher, I know we've covered this in one of our introduction episodes about just what is queenship, but a queen regent is a very powerful role that I think it's worth kind of just refreshing your memory on what it means. Our six queens were officially queen consorts, meaning that they were the wife of Henry and that their queenship came from him, as opposed to a queen regnant like later Mary or Elizabeth, meaning that they reigned in their own right. The third type of queen, though, was a queen regent, meaning that she was ruling on behalf of somebody else, i.e. the king. So all both of these times that Henry went to France, he appointed his prospective wife as the regent of England, meaning that she ruled in his stead. And in the, both of these cases, the queen would have a council who was helping her to rule, but it was basically she was the king by proxy. So anything that would have had to go through the king before was now going through whichever Catherine. I think what highlighting them as regents does is quite fascinating because it shows you that that the power that they're able to wield in a, in a moment of crisis. And I think, you know, make no mistake, when the king is away fighting in, in France, you, as is the case with Henry, it does leave the country in a somewhat precarious position and um, open to being very vulnerable. So... The way that they need to act and carry themselves by being the king in all but name is, is quite important. And a queen could be named a regent for a number of reasons. But in these two cases, it's interesting because the our two Catherines were named regents in a period of war. So they were also given a lot of military responsibility as well. So keeping up the spirits on the home front kind of thing, but also handling all of the military provisions in England. So Catherine of Aragon was getting military supplies over to France. Catherine Parr was handling the finances to get things over to France to help Henry. They're receiving war news and passing it on to the council. So yeah, they're keep, they're doing stuff at home and they're handling the day-to-day, -day, but they're also keeping England strong and secure and safe while there's a war going on on the continent. It's a lot to do. Yeah, especially for people who don't necessarily have experience with this. You know, they were never allowed to. This is not a traditional feminine role. So all of a sudden right? it's like, hey, how much armor do you think we need? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> well, this is what is so unique about Catherine of Aragon when Henry is away. Catherine wasn't just having to deal with, you know, as, as Kate just mentioned, you know, raising money um, and sending it over to France, you know, sending over provisions, you know, does he have enough horses, does he have enough armour, stuff like that. But she actually had to mount her own attack whilst Henry was in France. Just want to put it out there for people that we are not military historians by any oh. means. We will not be discussing the details of any battles that we mention here. You can Google it later. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so Henry goes off to France in June of 1513. He is part of this wider conflict against France that involves the Holy Roman Empire and the Papal States. And um, he's, you know, he's brought into it for a bit of a glory moment in France, as all Englishmen want, apparently. So he names Catherine. There is no England without France. <laughs> given Henry his Agincourt moment. <laughs> So he leaves Catherine in charge. He names her regent on June 11th, 1513. Actually, it's interesting. Her official title when he's gone is governor of the realm and captain general. 
So going back to that military-esque theme that we we're talking about, she's captain general in charge of defense. But yeah, as Callie said, that came in handy because the Scots were not too pleased by Henry going off to invade France. They were allied with France and they used the opportunity to invade into Northumberland, as you do. I mean, perfect moment, though, really. Strike while the iron's hot, while the king's off, you know, attacking in one place and then they're like, why not? Yeah. And as you said, Catherine must have had a moment of like, you know, okay, great. Um, She's already probably feeling the pressure anyway, but now she has a a defense to mount. And how is she going to do it? They sort of underestimated her um, because she, she grew up in this lifestyle. I mean, like her parents were very into the military campaigns. Um, She witnessed the you know, the fall of Granada when she was like, what, six years old at the hands yeah. of her mother. So um, look at her legacy. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? So she she's coming from a, a background of military glory and significance, not just from her father, Ferdinand, but also, like you said, like from Isabella, you know, she, she was at Granada. She was the one leading troops and, you know, taking Catherine around, probably um, military camps and things like that. This is not a strange world to her. And I think that is very much reflective in a letter that she sent in the August of 1513. And this is one part of it that I find incredible. So she sent a letter to Henry saying, my heart is very good at it. As in, she's ready to do what she needs to do. She's ready to get the job done. Even if it wasn't this dramatic, cinematic moment that people in film want us to believe, it's still... I reading this and doing this research it's amazing how organized she was like at one point she's like oh okay the scots are invading so yeah i'm i'm sitting here sewing banners for for the army and the next second she's getting all of the armor out of the tower and sending it up north it's she she knows just what to do i'd never want to play a game of risk with catherine harrigan like you said the way she organizes everything it's just it's flawless and it's seamless because I don't, I don't think, you know, if you were going to run a campaign, you could run it any better. She understood who she needed to deploy and where she needed to deploy them. Worth mentioning, too, that she was very pregnant at this oh, point. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, when she gave birth to this this child, it was a boy and he was stillborn in um, in October, the month after this. There seems to be a lot of argument, though, about her movement during this time. Um, As we said, a lot of dramatic portrayals show her as actually going to the border and being there for the troops and speaking to the troops a la Elizabeth during the Armada. Not, Not sure that that really happened. There is one account from a chronicler named Peter Martyr that says that she rode up to the camp and after she, you know, mounted all of this defense and the strategy that Callie was talking about, she gave a rousing speech to the troops about how Englishmen are so brave and awesome. But a lot of people think now that that wasn't really what happened. And considering how pregnant she was, I can kind of agree that it makes no sense. What I do find fascinating, again, as as well, is that, you know, she was leading a country, mounting a campaign, as Kate mentioned, very heavily pregnant, all at the age of 28. It blows my mind. I will give her credit, though, even if we sort of assume that the story of her going all the way to meet the troops is false, or at least exaggerated, she did want to. The intent was there. And she was intending to go as far as Warwick, Warwick Castle, but I don't think got that 
far. There again, the the records are a little spotty. It looks like when it comes to this, but yeah, the intent was there. Somebody probably advised her against it at some point, but she wanted to. She wanted to be there with her people, probably you know, in the image of her mother being there with the Spanish troops during the Reconquista. I kind of wanted to pick up on the point that we were just discussing about the banners and Catherine sewing the banners. She did a really good job at occupying every single space that you could possibly think of when it came to being involved in this campaign. You know, as we mentioned, she did start off by sewing banners and commanding the royal wardrobe to design banners. And I think the ones that she actually ended up commissioning were the royal seals of England, the royal seals of Spain, and also the imperial lion. So, you know, the three lions. That of its in and of itself is very telling about how she was leading this. You know, not only was she... Uh, Queen of England and she was doing this on you know behalf of her husband but very much that pride of Spain coming out there um, and just being a Spanish princess I think it's very real. The battle that ensued although Catherine was not there for it is known as the Battle of Flodden and Strapins because this is as close to military history as we are getting today. The Battle of Flodden took place in September 1513, um, so named after like the field that they fought in in Northumberland. And it was not a good day for Scotland. In fact, uh, many of their prominent nobles died, as well as the king, James IV of Scotland, was killed in the battle. Oh. Interestingly, he's the last wider British monarch to have died in battle. With the added drama that... This was Catherine's brother-in-law because James the Fourth was married to Henry VIII's sister Margaret Tudor. So this was this was a family affair that turned dram- dramatic very quickly. This makes Real Housewives look tame. Yeah, H- um, history tells us that um, the Scottish had about thirty thousand uh, troops on the field, and that by the end of the day, only fifteen hundred uh, English troops had been killed. Very much Agincourt moment again, but. Take of it what you will. Well, a national core moment for Catherine rather than her husband. Well, well, take (laughs) it. And Catherine, again, was very, very much involved with the aftermath. While there was an element of empathy for Margaret, who, you know, had just lost her husband. her Scotland was now in a state of crisis with a baby, you know, set to become king. She was very sympathetic, I think is fair to say, but she was not going to let what had happened slide. And she made her presence known and the effects of what had happened known. She was brutal. (laughs) Yeah, there's no two ways about it, really. Like, I I sort of knew, I knew the quote and every, the famous quote that came out of all of this. And I knew what she had done. But then, like, reading the letter and everything is something else. I I know you're you're dying to talk about that letter because it's a doozy. Well, it's just interesting that she can be nice if not assertive on one side to her sister-in-law like yeah you know sorry we've just plunged your country into turmoil that sucks but on the other hand when she writes to henry to tell him about her victory she gets very i bloodthirsty i think is that fair oh, to say? oh yeah it's it's very it would make game of thrones i think look tame it is straight it's- out of game of thrones though it's catherine sends Henry well she gives him an account of the battle but then she sends him a piece of clothing bloody that had been on 
James the Fourth's body when he fell on the battlefield. And she wants him to pin it to his standard in France to show, you know, the great military prowess of England. But she regrets that um, she couldn't send him a even better prize, which she had James's body embalmed and was going to send it to Henry as a trophy. But she said, quote, our Englishman's hearts would not suffer it. Like, <laughs> it's pretty gross. It's yeah, but it's also just a different. It's a different side to her, and not one I'm glad. One I'm glad yeah. we don't see well, very I don't often. It, I don't know if it's a different side to her. If it's just a side to her that we don't see that often because we're so wrapped up in her being like the quiet, pious, slighted woman, you know, sort of sitting in the corner just waiting for Henry to come home. When in reality, she has this spine of steel in her. Like the, the dalliances in warfare is not explored, you know, very widely or very often. So it's something that, you know, we, we do miss. And it, what well, it is there bubbling in the background, but, you know, it's not something we focus on. So when you do come across it, and especially with Catherine of Aragon, you're just a bit like, oh. And then when you again look at her a bit later down the line at things like the Blackfriars Court, you thought you got away from the Reformation. That <laughs> That kind of courage and that, like you said, that that spine of steel, you're like, oh, I see where it's coming from now. It just goes against everything that we've sort of been traditionally taught goes with queenship. You know, war is a very masculine thing. And yet Catherine is at the heart of this and learned from her mother, who was at the heart of the conflict in Spain with the Moors. It's just not a typical trope of queenship. Like, we didn't cover this in our queenship episode because it's just something you don't see very often. Yeah. So it's surprising to see just how well she warmed to it. Like, how she went from sewing and, you know, oh, I'll take care of the country while you're gone, Henry, to I wish I could have sent you the King of Scotland's bloody corpse. But alas, these people are, you know, way too spineless. <laughs> pick back up with Henry's second campaign to France. He wanted another chance of glory. Um, when he was in France while the Battle of Flodden was happening and Catherine of Aragon was destroying Scotland, basically, he had some successes. He took the town of Tarouane during during the Battle of the Spurs, but it wasn't any like really great military conquest. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't talk about it that much in when you're talking about you know the glories of England no well in true Henry fashion he came home and he built this up as some great victory for England but I think in his heart of hearts he knew that it had kind of been underwhelming so in 1544 he was convinced to go back to France and try again and this time he was married to Catherine Parr so in very much the same way that he left Catherine of Aragon to rule for him while he was in France in 1513, he did so to Catherine Parr in July 1544. They had only been married for about a year, but there was some, you know, there was some trust there. Um, I think he knew just how intelligent and how capable Catherine was, so he felt fine leaving her in charge. Yeah, and I think he'd already really had a rather stellar example of how to leave a wife at home whilst going to be 
you know, off to war. Yeah, no pressure. Yeah. yeah, she did it fine. Don't mess it up. In contrast, though, I think Catherine Parr's approach to Regency is a lot different than Catherine of Aragon's. Because as we saw, Catherine of Aragon had the specific circumstance of her country was under attack. So she she did have to jump to the military defense quite quickly. But Catherine Parr going into it, I think, was going to approach this all in a much more pragmatic way. She was much more yeah. into the politics and the responding to papers and like she was much more into the day-to-day stuff that I think Catherine of Aragon was or at least Catherine of Aragon became so preoccupied by Scotland so quickly that she didn't have the chance to do quite on the same level that Catherine of Parr was. Everybody's got different skill sets right everybody has areas where they they thrive more than others and I think both their regencies actually reflect more of that than I suppose anything else which I think is also quite telling. While Catherine of Aragon's regency ended on quite a bloodthirsty note, Catherine being so pious and at this point so dedicated to um, her spiritual work, so she's already starting to write and compose some prayers at this time, she actually writes a prayer for Henry and his army like on the eve of their departure for France. I'm not going to read all of it because it's quite long but I do think it's interesting that she specifically says at the end of it, O Lord God of hosts, so to turn the hearts of our enemies to the desire of peace, that no Christian blood be spilt, or else grant, O Lord, that with small effusion of blood and to the little hurt and damage of innocence, we may to thy glory obtain victory. Very different note, I think, to say, you know, these people don't want war. Hopefully we can talk them out of it and we won't have to fight. It's completely different and also completely baffling. For the longest time, I would have assumed they would have been completely flipped and, you know, the responses would have been the other way around. You know, Catherine of Aragon having the pious response and then Catherine Parr going, let's go and get them. I mean, both women are extremely pious on different sides of the aisle here, sure, but their piety can, I think, be matched in how devoted they were to their faith. But I guess Catherine of Aragon was raised in a different tradition you know, Catherine of Aragon was born into this world of war. So Catherine Parr, I think, doesn't have the, I don't want to say advantage, but she doesn't come into it from the same perspective yeah. as, as Catherine of Aragon might have. There, there is room to argue that could link that back to her experience, again, with the things like the Pilgrimage of Grace, you know, her, inter- her interaction with conflict and with having to defend herself and, you know, kind of fearing for her, her life and that of her children. That doesn't mean that Catherine Parr was, like, anti-war. Like, she encouraged Henry to go and have this moment and whatever. Um, She was very supportive of him that way. All of her letters are very supportive of his campaign. It's just that it's not as, I guess, um, traditional as Catherine of Aragon being this warlord almost. (laughs) (laughs) So... Catherine took over the crown of England in July 1544. And interestingly, the first thing she does upon becoming regent, or one of the first things she does, is move to Hampton Court. This is for sort of two reasons. One, the most obvious reason was that it was summer. The plague was going through London, so we want to get out of there. But also, as part of being regent, in a role that Catherine of Aragon didn't quite have to worry about to the same extent. Catherine Parr is also in charge of taking care of Henry's heirs. 
namely Prince Edward. So she actually gets all of Henry's children to come be with her at Hampton Court for this period. I mean, it makes sense because you want the family together. It might be a scary time for the children if their father is away at war, but it's also she can keep a close eye on them because if anything does happen to Henry, unlikely, but if anything does, Edward is in her charge. It is a very strategic move. Because the last thing you need is Henry dying a, a heroic, tragic death in France and then an ensuing civil war, you know, um, a vying control of Edward. And it was assumed that um, in the will that Henry wrote just before he left for France, it was just it was his just in case will. It doesn't really mean that he expected to die in the conflict, but it could be assumed that he was going to give the regency to Catherine anyway. So if in the event that he died, she would rule for Edward. So as you said, it makes sense to not only have him close for his own safety, but to have those two close together to keep the transfer of power that much safer. Uh, We know from the Wars of the Roses that that can be a very messy transition. So... Let's let's keep the little boy. What is he like? Like seven, you know? Yeah. Uh, let's let's keep him close. Let's keep him safe. But let's also keep him physically within our influence. Right. Her regency looks a lot different than Catherine of Aragon's. Not just because she wasn't fighting a fight, but she seems to have actually ruled pretty well politically. She had a council who was helping her to rule, but it was made up of all sympathetic characters and i think we can't we gotta give a lot of credit to catherine for ruling well during this period but we have to take into account that the people who were immediately helping her were very much sympathetic to her cause anyway yeah i think it's weird as well i think at this moment of time you know as we have discussed uh, on a couple occasions as henry kind of entered his later years he very much kind of waxed and waned about the extent of which he was a Protestant, or actually was a Catholic. So I think it's a weird little pocket of influence and a little Protestant pocket she's able to create for herself during the time that he's away. But the other thing is, like, we can't give her too much credit for ruling, quote, because, yeah, she does do a lot of things. She makes five royal proclamations while she's acting Queen of England, but most of them are to do with the war in France. So she's basically managing the country for Henry while he's physically not there, which means sending him supplies, as we said before, with Catherine of Aragon. So one of those five royal proclamations, for instance, is about the price of armor. So it's very much like she's handling the home front during a time of war, and that's really her preoccupation. Not as much like, you know, she's not going to put down some policy while Henry's gone. She's not going to overstep that mark. He comes back, he's like, like, I'll take back the reins out. Mm, Sorry, what? Mm, You know, you're not king anymore. I'd (laughs) admire that. This was way too much fun. (laughs) We're all Protestant now. (laughs) Not your via media Protestant. No, no, my friend. All of the priests are married. (laughs) No, so I think a lot of her, um, as we're saying, her role of like looking after the home front and things like that, it, it was to do with money raising and financing the war and sending off the the war, um, pardon me, the, the finances so Henry could then go and get more troops and things like that. It's very more traditional, I think, in, in that in that respect that, you know, her governance was and her intervention in that war was primarily just financial. Yeah, she was doing all of the 
quote, busy work of that Henry would have had to do had he been home. And though she was probably getting a lot of support from his counsel and everything, she was the one who was rather diligently, apparently, working on, you know, answering letters that were coming in, keep being a go-between between the council and Henry in France. And as you say, handling all of the money, basically. So not quite as eventful as Catherine of Aragon's regency, but I don't think she would have wanted it that way. I don't think so either. I don't think it would have been her bag. Which is fine. She thrived. Like, she did super well. And though it wasn't exciting, um, a lot of what I read, historians think that this had a much bigger historical impact than we maybe give it credit for. Because, as I said, all of the children were with Catherine at Hampton Court during the Regency, which you know, lasted a few months over the summer of 1544. So it was a lot of time that the young Lady Elizabeth was spending with her family, but also with Catherine. And she was seeing how that a woman could very capably lead a country, maybe not through war, like in the same way that Catherine of Aragon had done it, very hands-on. But she could handle all of this policy. She could write all of these letters and deal with all of these counselors without having the influence of the king. I think people can't help but assume that that made quite an impression on the young Elizabeth. And I think it'd be wrong to kind of assume, just kind of ignore it or think that it didn't. I think, especially with Elizabeth, she's very much lacking, you know, kind of female role models in her life. And I think, you know, we've said it before and probably say it again a hundred times over, Catherine Parr was a very big influence on her. And I don't think she gets enough credit for it, really. You know, we, we could talk about her impact on Elizabeth's education and her religious politics, but in terms of how how far she shaped her in terms of dealing with advisors and playing the game of politics, you know, it's, it, it isn't spoken about. It's always, she was very much like Henry. Yeah, because I think it was sort of assumed that if a woman took control, she would wouldn't know what to do and the country would fall apart and the men would just sort of rule for her. Yeah. But that's not what happened. Catherine rose to the occasion and she did a really good job. And Henry clearly knew that she would. He trusted her enough to fulfill this role. So, you know, you can, I can see how a young precocious Elizabeth would be like, oh, okay, so this can be done. And it, it was being done in other places, you know, like um, in, in Scotland and in France, for example, there have been cases of regencies before, but this was right in front of Elizabeth. And it was somebody, as you said, who she respected and who she knew was very intelligent already. I know we like to downplay Henry's role in our podcast and the sort of modern conventional view of him now is talking about him as this tyrant, this horrible person. But actually does say a lot about him that he knew just how valuable these women were and trusted them with reigning like again they had councils there were people there to help but like he wouldn't have done this for just anyone you know he might not have said yeah let's go to France if he had thought oh well there's nobody to leave behind to rule effectively yeah I don't see him having said something like that if him and Catherine Howard were still married, or even even Anna Cleves, if I'm honest. But it just goes to show that the the reputations of these women within their marriage was 
was good. Like Henry held them in very high esteem if he was indeed going to leave his kingdom in their hands. One more thing before we wrap up that I just want to point out because it's an interesting part of the sort of research process is that one of the best ways to show a relationship between two people is by reading their letters. But in Henry's case, with all of the wives, they're actually very rarely apart and Henry hates writing letters, so he won't if he doesn't have to. So when he's away in France, both of these times, it's interesting because it's some of the best instances we get of correspondence between the married couples. We have the famous example of his love letters to Anne Boleyn, of course, we're pushing those to one side, but this, these are interactions between a husband and wives that I think we don't really get a lot of from Henry. So it's just interesting to see the interactions there. It's not in his comfort zone to do this. And again, I think it's quite telling, again, about the type of people that he would leave behind and the letters he's willing to exchange with them. I was actually really surprised reading Catherine Parr's letters to Henry. He didn't write back very often. He physically hated writing. Yeah, he hates writing. So, of course, he's not going to waste time on that. But her letters to him are quite interesting because she fills him in on everything that's going on, um, even some of the like more mundane details of, I met with so-and-so, I approved this, blah, blah, blah. But then she concludes with some really intimate words, and maybe it's just fluff, and maybe she's just kind of buttering him up, I don't know. But if you didn't know how horrible Henry was, you would think that this was a very loving marriage, you know, and that she does genuinely miss him and wish him well of course maybe she does we don't know but like if you didn't know anything about henry i don't think you would guess that it was written to him you know it's one thing i think to especially with someone like henry you know placate them and kind of shower them in reverence in person it's a whole nother thing to put it on paper i just feel like there's a a thought process like i'm just thinking you know when, when we write things you know the thought process that goes into it and you know the a level of detail that goes into it that i think is you you don't get when you're having a conversation she does genuinely seem like she misses him and yeah. it could just be strategy of um you know while you're off playing war don't forget me um don't get tired of me kind of thing like it might just be insurance that way but she does a really good job of it. Um, the letters are are quite moving. And when Henry eventually comes home in the fall of 1544, after he, he captures some French city, I think it's Bouillon or I, I can't remember, um, he has this sort of like small quasi victory that he claims um, to, you know, stoke his ego. Catherine, well, Catherine does indeed stoke his ego. And she goes to to meet him once he lands in England. And they have this kind of like, second honeymoon e thing together without the children and it's just so out of character because you you know you think of Catherine Parr as the sort of well I have to get married to another woman so let's have it be this gentle influence but they seem to actually have enjoyed each other I think that that's a side of him that again we don't see very often much like we don't see the warring side of these queens very often and we kind of forget that it's there and I think it's safe to say that the two regencies were so successful that he was probably very much in love with his wives when he came home if not impressed you know just of yeah I've made a good choice 
yeah i and also for their part of the very well especially for catherine part not so much catherine of Aragon is get to live another day so it's been fun uh you know taking a, a brief pause from all of the reformation stuff to talk about these these two chapters because as you said we don't talk about them enough they're not they're not really um a highlight of the reigns of these women which is interesting mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Six Queens podcast. Next week, Callie and I will discuss after the Reformation and the Queen's martyrdom in the popular imagination. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram, and you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you will, leave a review and a rating. Long live the Queens.